From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. As big as Super Tuesday was last week, we've got back-to-back big primaries tomorrow and Tuesday of next week. Michigan, Washington, Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota vote tomorrow. We'll hear how the Sanders and Biden campaigns are faring, and we'll talk with our political analysts Lonnie Chen and Nomiki Konst. The L.A. Times has a new investigative piece on the city's abandoned oil wells. Many abut residential neighborhoods, so cleanup of the sites is important, but assigning responsibility is easier said than done. It's Air Talk right after NPR News here on 89.3 KPCC. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Hope you're having a superb day and had a nice weekend with some rain badly needed coming our way, I guess as soon as tonight. We have a jam-packed program for you in the second hour. We'll talk with L.A. County's top public health official about the spread of the coronavirus, the cancellation of the BNP Paribas tennis tournament, our biggest in California, one of the the larger uh, non-Grand Slam tournaments in tennis played in Indian Wells in the Coachella Valley. So uh, that's another big event canceled. You probably heard the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, also canceled late Friday. So we'll get a sense second hour what's going on in making the determination about these events. And that cruise ship, the Grand Princess, that uh, was quite a few miles off of San Francisco due to dock today in Oakland at noon with more than 20 of the crew members and a few of the passengers will have to be quarantined after that that ship um, docks this afternoon. But we begin with politics. Of course, Joe Biden coming off his uh, strong performance in Super Tuesday. Even though Joe Biden lost California, he swept the South and picked up states like Minnesota and uh, other states as well uh, to come away as the winner on Super Tuesday. But it's a chance for Bernie Sanders tomorrow to get back in the race even more strongly, potentially to even uh, take over the front-runner status yet again. We have major states that are in play, including Michigan with 125 delegates, uh, Washington State with 89 delegates, Missouri 68, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota rounding out what's called Big Tuesday tomorrow. Uh, Joining us to talk about what's going on in Michigan, which is of great importance to Bernie Sanders because he was the winner there uh, against um, Hillary Clinton in the primary four years ago. With us is a reporter from the Detroit Free Press, Kathy Gray. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Hi, Larry. So how big a presence have the two uh, major candidates had in your state? Well, Bernie Sanders has been here all weekend. He had rallies uh, across the state and different events across the state, too. Um, He attracted big crowds. He had 10,000 people in Ann Arbor last night with uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And Joe Biden uh, got here today. Uh, He had lots of surrogates in over the weekend uh, from John Kerry, former Secretary of State, 
Governor Gretchen Whitmer was uh, campaigning for him yesterday in Detroit. So he's had surrogates in campaigning for him, uh, but he hasn't. He didn't get here until this morning. He's doing events uh, in three different cities and will be in Detroit tonight for a rally with Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, two of his former rivals. Now, four years ago, Bernie Sanders won 57 percent of the white Michigan Democratic primary electorate who do not have college degrees. And that's over a third of the Democratic electorate, a lot of non-college educated whites in that primary. Is that very clearly who Sanders is going after this time? Uh, he's going after young voters, uh, and which he's been doing uh, across the across the board. He's also going after union members. He's made trade a big issue while he's here. Uh, but we had a poll that came out today that has Biden opening up a pretty big lead in Michigan, uh, 24 points. Wow. Uh, but we have to keep in mind that um, the polls right before the 2016 presidential primary had Hillary Clinton up by a similar margin. Um, we think that uh, this this is a little bit different, uh, that uh, suburban voters are, are going for Joe Biden um, quite a bit. Uh, African-American voters also are a big demographic for Joe Biden in this poll. Uh, and all the polls that have come out in Michigan have uh, have Joe Biden up by pretty significant margins. And um, I'm also wondering about, you mentioned union members, that Bernie Sanders is going after them, trade being one of the big issues. But I wonder if, as in uh, Las Vegas with the culinary workers there, there was a lot of criticism of Sanders, even though he won that state's uh, caucuses, um, criticism from union leadership um, because of Sanders' medical plan, which would knock out the union health care plans. Is that an issue in Michigan's manufacturing sector? Sure. Uh, Michigan has got a a very large union uh, organized labor presence in Michigan, and there are concerns that they're going to lose those hard-fought, hard-negotiated benefits with a Medicare for All program. So there is that concern. And Biden is also, um, his surrogates are also reminding Michiganders that uh, he was one of the ones who uh, shepherded the auto bailout uh, uh, back in 2009, uh, when GM and, and Fiat Chrysler were facing bankruptcy. And so Joe Biden was, was quite a presence here in Michigan at that point. So that's one point he's trying to hammer home as well. We haven't seen uh, the higher-than-typical young voter turnout with Super Tuesday. Are there thoughts that in Michigan it's going to be a similar thing? Because it seems like Bernie Sanders is really counting on an atypically high young voter turnout. Oh, absolutely. And uh, like I said earlier, the the rally in Ann Arbor last night, which is the home of University of Michigan, attracted 10,000 students. Uh, now, we don't know how many of those are, are going to vote tomorrow. Um, we see a big surge in absentee voting in Michigan this year, but this is the first, the first real big election where any voter can vote by absentee ballot. So there's been a huge surge in that, whereas in previous years, you had to have six specific reasons um, to vote for absentee or you, or you couldn't vote by absentee. So we've had a doubling of the numbers of absentee voters. And another quirk in Michigan is that people who have voted for a candidate who has since dropped out of the race, voted by absentee ballot, they can go back and redo their ballot. 
so we've had nearly 30,000 people who have done that as well, voting for somebody um, who hasn't who is still in the race. Wow. Uh, I was also wondering about the count in Michigan. Here in California, our, our new primary system is to do it for a full month, it seems like, between early voting and how long it takes to count it. So it's difficult to use California as a momentum generator. Certainly there are tons of delegates here, but um, it, it's not doesn't do much for you momentum-wise because it takes forever to get the result. Michigan, do you have any sense how long it's going to take for your election officials to have a count? It's going to take a while. Uh, the The clerks in Michigan um, run their own, uh, you know, we've got uh, 1,800 or, or more clerks uh, who are running each of their own individual um, uh, elections, and many of them are saying that they might not have results tonight. They may not have results. They may not have results until sometime tomorrow or sometime uh, Wednesday, because in Michigan, they can't start counting the absentee ballots until Election Day. So they've got this huge surge in, in uh, absentee ballots, and they can't start counting them until 7 o'clock Tuesday morning. And so many of the clerks are saying, you know, expect a long night, settle in, because we're not going to know, uh, we're not going to know uh, right as the polls close at 8 o'clock. Kathy Gray with us, politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Kathy, anything just uh, of of interest uh, for those of us in Southern California before I let you go? Um, well, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people voting. We've got we've had a lot of people, candidates and surrogates and um, the like here. We had Elizabeth Warren here on Super Tuesday uh, shortly before she decided to drop out of the race. So, you know, Michigan is going to be a real key. Donald Trump won here by only 10,704 votes in 2016. So, uh, you know, all eyes are going to be on Michigan, not only to, uh, not only Tuesday night, but in November as well. Thank you so much, Kathy. We appreciate it. Thanks, Larry. Kathy Gray is politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press. Michigan, with the largest number of delegates at stake in tomorrow's Big Tuesday primaries, 352 total for the six states. Michigan has 125 of those. Washington State with 89. It'd be interesting to see there because Bernie Sanders has performed so well in the West, winning California, Nevada, Utah. Um, and um, we'll see what happens in Washington. Uh, did I mention Colorado? Anyway, um, so Washington State is going to be very key for Bernie Sanders to see how he does there. Also got Missouri, Mississippi, Idaho, and North Dakota. Joining us to talk about where we stand in the presidential race is Lonnie Chen, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. He was an advisor to Marco Rubio's campaign of four years ago, and he was policy director four years prior to that of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Lonnie, it's good to have you with us again. Thank you, Larry. Since we last talked, uh, Joe Biden has, uh, you know, from falling back on the ropes, ready to be knocked out of the ring, uh, come back to the center here as the front runner. Your thoughts on the stakes for Bernie Sanders tomorrow? Well, this is make or break, uh, I I think. And it's such a remarkable turn of events, because if you think back to, well, just as recently as right before Super Tuesday, there was doubt about what Joe Biden's pathway would be. Now there's doubt about what Bernie Sanders pathway can be going forward. So I think it's a critical time for Sanders and the Sanders campaign. 
the Democratic establishment, to the extent that we can say that, has really coalesced around Joe Biden. And I think there's a sense of inevitability surrounding his nomination uh, in a way that would have been unspeakable and unthinkable just two weeks ago. So Bernie Sanders is going to have to perform. He's going to have to turn out those younger voters. And he's going to have to surprise in the way that Joe Biden surprised last week in the state of Texas. In a similar way, I think Sanders is going to have to demonstrate uh, that he's got some magic in his uh, in his bag there if he wants to continue uh, and, and have a plausible chance at winning the nomination. So something like that would be a big win in Michigan, despite him on the eve of the primary being down more than 20 points in the polls. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Michigan is the big prize. There are other states going tomorrow, but arguably none that would present the same kind of opportunity as Michigan does. And obviously the higher number of delegates in Michigan helps as well. Um, but but he really, you know, the, the challenge for Bernie Sanders, you may remember, he was the one who said, he was the only one who said, in fact, in a debate a few weeks ago, that whoever has a plurality of delegates going to the Democratic National Convention uh, ought to be the party's nominee. Uh, he said that, obviously, thinking he might be the beneficiary of it. But now it looks like Joe Biden is on track to be the beneficiary of it. So it'll be interesting to see if Sanders sticks to his word, if indeed Biden has a plurality but not a majority of delegates by the time we get to the national convention, if Sanders is willing to step aside in the same way that he would have wanted his opponents to step aside. And I think he said over the weekend that he would. But I, I want to come back to that issue because I have to say, I don't really understand that approach. I mean, the we- reason you have a convention is to choose who the nominee is going to be. And if neither of the candidates hits that threshold where uh, you're going to, on acclamation, win a first ballot nomination, I-, I don't understand why you wouldn't just let the, the you know, c- convention go through the process. But I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that later. Let me bring into the conversation Nomiki Kantz joining us, uh, who's founding member of Matriarch, a newly launched organization uh, to help progressive working class women run for Congress. She also hosts the Nomiki Show on YouTube and was a member of the DNC Unity Reform Commission and a Bernie Sanders surrogate four years ago. Nomiki, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it very much. First of all, your your thoughts on the stakes tomorrow, particularly in Michigan and Missouri. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you brought up this whole conversation about uh, the convention, because uh, when I was on the Unity Reform Commission, which set the rules for uh, the Democrat, well, mostly set the rules for the Democratic primary, I should say, um, and the superdelegate process, there was a, a mandate to reduce the superdelegate 65 percent. It came out of the convention when Bernie Sanders surrendered his delegates to Hillary Clinton because technically it was a contested convention. So they made an, you know, they negotiated that they wanted to reform the party and the primary process, and that would take place during the Unity Reform Commission. Um, and so that was some of the leverage that Bernie had at the time. Listen, if Bernie does not win Michigan, I'm going to be honest, I'm a surrogate. Uh, if Bernie doesn't win Michigan and he doesn't win Washington, I think we're going to be having more of those conversations. If he does win Michigan and he does win Washington, then, you know, it's really going to be more about that delegate count and and who's going to have the plurality or the majority. Um, you know, my, from my perspective, I think uh, the difference between uh, this race and, and 2016 is, you know, Bernie had a solid labor, maybe not all the union endorsements that were coming from the top, but the union membership. He had solid union membership supporting him. And he still has more union endorsements 
than any of the other Democrats had combined in the candidate, the candidates had combined this, this election. But going into Michigan, where frankly, Donald Trump has been able to solidify a group of working class voters that haven't been turning out in this primary, keep in mind. Um, not just in Michigan, but but nationwide since 2016. And of course, Joe Biden has the name ID uh, from a lot of these supporters. You may not necessarily understand that Joe Biden was the architect of one of the architects of TPP, a trade deal that he fully supported and campaigned around NAFTA, uh, that he was was. Really- well, Bernie Sanders, though, Nomiki has been uh, constantly reminding uh, Michigan voters of that. Right. He has. Um, you know, and, and I and I think, you know, that will that message will transcend. But it's a message that I think really needed to be hammered home a little bit more on a national level. Bernie was uh, has been trying to create this new coalition of voters. But as we saw in the last and Super Tuesday, white working class voters did not show up at the rates that they did in 2016 for him and definitely not at the rates that he needs to win. I want to go back to the delegates. So do you agree with Bernie Sanders that whoever has the most delegates, even if it, it, it doesn't you know, put them into clinching numbers, that they, that should be the nominee? Or do you think that that's not sufficient? It should be up to the delegates in Milwaukee to make the call. You know, I have a different perspective than Senator Sanders on this, and I'm not saying this as a representative of him. I'm saying this as somebody who's been in the Democratic Party, knows what it takes to run to be a delegate, knows what it takes uh, to save the money to go to the convention and share a hotel room with other delegates. People really want to exercise their votes, and they want to see, um, I've heard this from a lot of different activists out there on the ground, actually on all sides, that they want to see this nomination process all the way to the end because everyone should have a stake in the Democratic Party um, to vote. I mean, States, later states shouldn't be left out of the process because the DNC negotiated uh, the schedule of, of the state's primaries and caucuses with the state parties. I mean, that's really not what democracy is. It should be one person, one vote. It also should give the opportunity for everybody to vote. Um, and at the convention itself, you know, if it is very close and you see a divide where half of the Democratic electorate or almost half of the Democratic electorate supported one candidate over the other and some of those states didn't have open primaries or fully Democratic processes uh, for their for their nominating process, because there are states like New York, which are closed primaries, and there are states that have fully open primaries, yeah. so more people are able to vote. I think, you know, this is this is where I believe you'll be able to uh, exercise negotiation and 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 I mean negotiation over the platform, a negotiation of how the Democratic Party should should run. I don't know if Bernie Sanders himself wants to get into that fight, and I understand his argument in that we need to be unified in defeating Trump, and we don't have a lot of time. But I still think that Bernie has a path. I okay. Last time, you know, Michigan, the polls were not great the night before, but he turned out around pretty. All right, no Mickey Const with us, Lonnie Chen with us as well. Big Tuesday is what it's called with six states. Uh, and uh, three of them fairly large uh, that are at play with their primaries. Uh, Big stakes. We'll continue our conversation with our political analysts in one minute. Coming up in our second hour on Air Talk, the head of Los Angeles County's Department of Public Health, Barbara Ferrer, with us. She'll tell us about the latest evidence we have of COVID-19 in Los Angeles County, and we'll talk more broadly as well about the cancellation of large public gatherings, uh, the big Indian Wells tennis tournament scheduled to get underway this week, the BMP 
Parabas tournament has been canceled. Now the question is, what happens with Coachella, stagecoach, at the Polo Grounds uh, in Indio next month, where you've got three weekends of huge crowds that typically uh, descend on the desert there for those events? Are they going to uh, go on as scheduled? What what would be the threshold for uh, those programs uh, being canceled if it came to that next month? But right now, of course, we're trying to deal with the day-by-day increase in the number of people diagnosed with COVID-19, the coronavirus. Right now, our focus on politics. Joining us is Lonnie Chen of Hoover Institution at Stanford and Nomiki Konst of Matriarch, an organization that works with young progressive working-class women uh, to prepare them to run for Congress. Uh, Lonnie, I want to talk a little bit about endorsements, and let's begin uh, with Kamala Harris and her video in which she made her pick for the Democratic nominee. One of the things that we need right now is we need a leader who really does care about the people and who can therefore unify the people, and I believe Joe can do that. Um, I am supporting Joe because I believe that he is a man who has lived his life with great dignity. Um, He is a a public servant who has always worked for the best of who we are as a nation, and we need that right now. There is so much at stake in this election, guys. And uh, right after that, we had Cory Booker, senator from New Jersey, who endorsed Joe Biden and uh, the Reverend Jesse Jackson endorsing Bernie Sanders candidacy. So after Super Tuesday, you're starting to see more and more of these endorsements in the race being made. Uh, Lonnie, do these endorsements make much of a difference? We know Jim Clyburn's the congressman in in South Carolina, seemed to have a huge effect there and couldn't have come at a better time for Joe Biden. But do any of these others have an effect? Uh, It's a good question, Larry. My sense is that not all endorsements are created equal, first of all. And second of all, the timing of those endorsements matters quite a bit. So you had Clyburn's endorsement coming uh, right before the South Carolina primary uh, arguably made a significant difference in the margin for Joe Biden. And then you have the big three, Buttigieg, Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke endorsing uh, Biden right before the Super Tuesday primaries, I, I think arguably helping him in Texas. Now, the the Booker and Harris endorsements are important and significant because they are both former candidates, both of whom have a following in the Democratic Party. But, you know, one does wonder to what extent those endorsements matter given when they came, uh, which is sort of in this period between the Super Tuesday and the Big Tuesday primaries. Um, you know, maybe not as impactful because the states that those two senators are from are not states where we're going to see elections tomorrow. Um, but, you know, important for Biden to demonstrate that the momentum is continuing. And I think to that extent, the the endorsements are somewhat meaningful. But in this day and age, I think endorsements as a general matter probably matter less than they did, let's say, 15 or 20 years ago. We have breaking news that's just in involving a former Los Angeles city councilman. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice just uh, sent us this release. Uh, former Los Angeles city councilman Mitchell Englander of Santa Monica surrendered to FBI agents this morning to face criminal charges that he obstructed an investigation into him accepting cash, female escort services, hotel rooms, and expensive meals from 
from a businessman during trips to Las Vegas and Palm Springs and later lied to the FBI about his conduct. Englander was taken into custody after being named in a seven-count indictment returned by a federal grand jury on January 16th. Englander is expected to be arraigned this afternoon in the Roybal Federal Building and Courthouse. The indictment charges Englander with one count of participating in a scheme to falsify material facts, three counts of making false statements, and three counts of witness tampering. Englander represented Los Angeles uh, Council District 12 in the San Fernando Valley from the middle of 2011 until his abrupt resignation uh, at the end of 2018, with two years still left in his term. Englander served as the council president pro tem and was on the Planning and Land Use Management Committee, which oversees many of the most significant commercial and residential development projects in the city of Los Angeles. This all the way, uh, by the way, is all coming from the uh, Department of Justice release. The indictment alleges that Englander schemed to cover up his acceptance of cash payments, expensive meals, and escort services from a businessman identified in the indictment as business person A, who operated companies in Los Angeles relating to major development projects and sought to increase his business opportunities in the city. Two months after the Las Vegas trip, business person A began cooperating with the FBI in a public corruption investigation focused on suspected pay-to-play schemes involving Los Angeles public officials. According to the indictment, from August 2017 through December 2018, Englander knowingly and willfully falsified and concealed material facts pertaining to this federal public corruption investigation. Specifically, and again, this is being alleged by the Justice Department, that's what I'm reading, specifically, Englander covered up facts that he had accepted items of value during June 2017 trips to Las Vegas and Palm Springs. The indictment further alleges that on that trip, when he was accompanied by two city staffers, a lobbyist, and a real estate developer, Englander accepted from business person A an envelope with $10,000 in cash, services from a female escort, hotel rooms, $1,000 in casino gambling chips, $34,000 in bottle service at a nightclub, and a $2,481 dinner at a restaurant. The indictment further alleges at a golf tournament in Palm Springs on June 12, 2017, business person A allegedly gave Englander an envelope containing $5,000 in cash. Shortly after the trips, Englander is uh, alleged to have arranged for business person A uh, to pitch his business to a friend of Englander's who was a developer. In August in 2017, after he learned about the FBI's public corruption investigation, Englander allegedly privately sent an encrypted message to business person A via the online messaging service Confide, indicating he now wanted to reimburse him for portions of that June 2017 Las Vegas trip. The indictment alleges on at least three occasions Englander attempted to corruptly persuade business person A to provide false and misleading information and omit relevant information from the FBI and federal prosecutors conducting the public corruption investigation. 
On February 6, 2018, Englander allegedly instructed Business Person 8 to lie to the FBI, withhold material information from the Bureau, and how to answer certain questions from the FBI, including questions about escort services provided by Business Person A and Englander's purported attempts to reimburse Business Person A. On February 12, 2018, Englander allegedly met Business Person A in Englander's car, and after Englander turned up the car stereo music to a loud volume to obstruct possible listening devices, Englander again repeatedly instructed Business Person A to lie to the FBI while driving in a circle around the block to conceal their meeting. This again, I'm reading from the Department of Justice release. This is what the federal government is alleging, is what I'm reading. The indictment further alleges Englander made false statements to the FBI and federal prosecutors on three separate occasions in 2017 and 2018. For example, on February 7, 2018, Englander allegedly falsely stated he and Business Person A had not discussed the FBI or its investigation and that he did not instruct anyone on what to say to the FBI. On December 31, 2018, the day he resigned from the L.A. City Council, Englander again met with the FBI and federal prosecutors and made allegedly additional false statements from receiving personal benefits from Business Person A and also falsely stated he encouraged Business Person A to, quote, be transparent and share everything, unquote, with the FBI. If convicted of the seven charges in the indictment, Englander would face a statutory maximum penalty of 50 years in federal prison. Uh, the case against Englander, <coughs> excuse me, as part of an ongoing public corruption investigation being conducted by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. So that is a very lengthy release from the Department of Justice and from Nicholas Hanna, the U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, um, outlining these allegations against former L.A. City Councilman uh, Mitchell Englander. Any additional details that we have, we'll bring them to you on AirTalk. We'll continue our conversation in just 90 seconds here on 89.3 KPCC. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. There's been so much conjecture at Los Angeles City Hall with the FBI's investigation into alleged pay-for-play and corruption um, involving the L.A. City Council. But this, uh, the first case of a former sitting member of the council to be charged, obstruction uh, of a probe into alleged exception of cash, escort services, hotel rooms, and meals from a businessman, Mitchell Englander, former L.A. City Councilman, the one who was arrested today on the seven-count indictment that was handed down in January. We're talking politics with Nomiki Konst of Matriarch, Lonnie Chen of Stanford's Hoover Institution. Uh, let's get back to uh, the national uh, scene to talk about what, what What's going on there? And and I did want to um, talk about um, 
Donald Trump and his strategies, no Mickey, of you know how he has been labeling Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, uh, the president retweeting um, audio of a gaffe, uh, Joe Biden speaking, which was selectively edited. Twitter actually removed it for being misleading. Facebook allowed it to stay up. But your thoughts on on whether the president is actually damaging um, the two Democrats as he makes these attacks. Yeah, he probably is. I mean, we're dealing with a president who doesn't play by the rules. Um, You know, I think the old Goldwater rule is out the door for for pretty much every campaign and it has been for the last several years. Um, He, you know, the longer this plays out for Democrats, uh, the harder it is for him to have a one-on-one with, with the Democrat, but it also hurts the Democrats in that they don't have a candidate to uh, have a counter message to um, Donald Trump. I mean, from the Bernie Sanders perspective, I think he's going to be pushing uh, back on on uh, Donald Trump's uh, inability to, to recognize democratic values, um, his, his pseudo uh, populism and and really have an opposite uh, message on trade, uh, which obviously, if you look at the Rust Belt, that was a big factor in 2016. And I think for Joe Biden, you know, he has to kind of uh, find his way around um, some of the attacks that, that Donald Trump has already signaled and put out there. And I haven't heard that yet. And I really hope if he is the nominee, that there is a solid counter message to trade uh, with Donald Trump. And there is a solid counter message to uh, valuing, you know, dem- democracy, because that's really what's at stake here. And we know the attacks that Donald Trump is going to throw at Biden. And we know the attacks that he's already throwing at, at Bernie Sanders. Um, I, I don't know how many of them are going to click, but that's why I think the Democrats really need to focus on what's at stake here in this election is really economic mobility. What's at stake here in this election is really about preserving our, our democratic values. And Donald Trump um, is, is really, uh, he's, he's, he's declared war on both of them at this point. Um, so, th- you know, both of those candidates right now on the Democratic side should be talking about these issues because the earlier you do it, the better it is for, for the, the general election. Uh, let me bring Lonnie Chen back in from Mover Institution. So Lonnie, how effective do you think the president's characterizations of Biden and Sanders are? Well, you know, look, I think the president is uniquely able to, and whether you see it as a positive or negative, uniquely able to paint his opponents in a particularly unflattering light. And whether that's the nicknames he gives them or the persistence with which he tries to, to you know, talk about the various memes that he's applied to them. And this is going to be a challenge, whether it's for Sanders or for Biden, whoever the Democratic nominee is. Because the reality also is that you've got a situation where the Trump campaign has already made clear they're going to play by their own rules. And that will mean that, you know, they would rather uh, sort of go ahead and do something rather than than, than, than try and seek apology or seek uh, permission for it. And, and I think that does alter the characteristics of a campaign. It alters the rules on which a campaign is fought. And I do think it is going to be a unique challenge for someone like Joe Biden, let's say, who's used to waging campaigns in a very traditional way. That's why I think those people who support Bernie Sanders out there are saying, look, the one thing Bernie gives you that Joe Biden does not is unpredictability. And it's a similar unpredictability to the president. And in that way, it would make for a more dynamic general election campaign than I think Biden would. Now, I think Biden is the, quote, safer bet. 
But Sanders does present a unique challenge, and I think Democratic voters and voters who are looking to turn the president out of office need to recognize that that dynamic is there with Sanders that's unpredictable and dynamic. Well, I think the thing with Sanders, too, is um, I can see him not taking the bait that Trump puts out there. And I, I, I just think it's going to be very difficult for Joe Biden not to, to succumb to the different, you know, sorts of, uh, of probing and pushing and, and efforts to get under the skin that Donald Trump is so good at. Nomiki, your, your thoughts on the two men's, the, the way they would likely respond to Trump. Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right there. I mean, uh, it, also the attacks that, that, uh, that right that Donald Trump is using against Bernie Sanders right now are a little bit weaker. They don't they don't register with a lot of voters. Um, it's it, there's a bit of the red scare tactics. I mean, we saw it with Cuba. That might work in Florida, but I don't think it's going to work for a national election. Um, and and equating his policies to Venezuela, which you know the reason why the red scare tactics worked was because there was fear where people were, you know people had to go underneath their desks at school. That's not the world that we live in today. So I think. Um, most likely Bernie Sanders wouldn't be taking the bait. But the other element here that is not discussed enough is, you know, what what uh, the president has been able to do in the last few years is take his movement and match it to the Republican Party. So he's been able to unify those two factions. And the only person I can see doing that is Bernie Sanders. I mean, he has this extremely energized move- movement that we're hoping gets him through the Democratic Party's controlled primary into the general election, because historically, the Democrats who win are the ones who have an energized base. Yeah, I think I think the the problem with that argument, though, Nomiki, is is when you look at the southern U.S. and how Bernie got hammered on Super Tuesday, the concerns about his ideology seem to be pretty clear in certain parts of the of the country. So the idea, this was sort of the point that he was making, that he's the one who could get the working class middle of the country to join him, that they would they would leave Trump to go for him. Well, he's having trouble getting those folks to leave Biden to go for him. So, no, Mickey, I mean, how does uh, it, it seems like that argument isn't being borne out so far. Well, I think that if you I'm saying this is if he's the nomin if he wins the nomination, the Democratic primary is, is different. I mean, like I said in, in, in earlier in the show, you have some states that have closed primaries. You have strange election rules where people don't turn out uh, because they're not consolidated dates. There's a lot of weird uh, rules that that dictate how a primary is structured and how the Democratic Party is structured. With that being said, if Bernie Sanders were to win the nomination, he'd be in a similar role as Donald Trump in that you'd have loyal Democrats who pretty much, you know, quote unquote, fall in line uh, with the Democratic nominee. And you'd have Bernie Sanders' movement, which brings in people that, you know, younger people, uh, it brings in, you know, independents who, who believe in Bernie Sanders' vision. It brings in former Republicans and, and maybe even current Republicans. I know that's the hope. I Yeah, the question would be, would, would that really happen? Uh, Lonnie, quick final word from you on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think Biden is going to draw more Republicans in or disaffected Republicans in than Sanders. But again, the unconventional nature of Sanders' candidacy could mean that he's drawing on some voters, particularly in the Midwest, that went for Trump, but maybe disaffected with Trump now uh, four years later. All right. Lonnie Chan of Stanford's Hoover Institution. Nomiki Konst of Matriarch. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Coming up... We're going to turn our attention to 
oil wells that have been abandoned in Los Angeles. If you grew up in L.A. like I did, <laughs> I remember trying to sneak into the old oil fields. We'd ride our bikes in there, play around the oil fields of Venice and Baldwin Hills, places like that. There were so many of them uh, around when I was a kid. Many of those fields are still there and in some cases abandoned. So who should clean them up? They abut residential neighborhoods. The LA Times just published an investigative piece looking into it. We'll talk about that momentarily. Coming up next hour on Air Talk, the top public health official for Los Angeles County with us to talk about the very latest in coronavirus, COVID-19, what's happening locally. We have the big news that the BNP Paribas tennis tournament at Indian Wells in the Coachella Valley canceled. Uh, So that's one huge event. We're going to look at other events and colleges, how they're all planning to deal with the spread of coronavirus. In case you just joined us, former Los Angeles City Councilman Mitch Englander turned himself into the FBI today on charges of obstructing a probe into his alleged acceptance of cash, escort services, hotel rooms, and meals from a businessman during trips to Vegas and Palm Springs. Englander was named in a seven-count indictment back in January. He will be arraigned this afternoon in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, but we turn our attention right now to Los Angeles's oil history. You might not fully realize it, but L.A. was an oil town. And we have, of course, the La Brea tar pits where the thick stuff uh, bubbled to the surface. When you go to the beach in some places in Los Angeles, you'll see the tar seeps that come up through the sand. All of this related to all the oil that historically was under Los Angeles and at the start of the car boom in the early 20th century led to oil rigs going up all over Southern California. In fact, if you look at some of the Great historic photos of Long Beach and Huntington Beach and other communities, uh, Baldwin Hills. You'll see oil wells everywhere. Uh, Just a huge part of the landscape of Southern California. But as the oil business has diminished, what happens to all the oil wells that have been left behind? Who's responsible to remove them or to clean up the areas? Well, the Los Angeles Times, in collaboration with the Center for Public Integrity, took a look into whose responsibility that is, and we're very pleased to have uh, joining us Mark Olalde, who's environment reporter for the Desert Sun. Mark, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on, on another slow news day. Yeah, right. Yeah, not much going on. Uh, so share with us uh, how you were able to quantify or at least get some degree of a handle on how many of these oil wells have been abandoned by the owners. Yeah, and I think that that opening was 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 very helpful because this is definitely a historical issue. You know, the first oil well around um, Southern California uh, was drilled in Los Angeles in 1892. And when we're talking laws uh, that were in effect in 1892, you know, we're clearly not talking uh, the modern standard. And so a lot of the kind of orphan well problem, uh, kind of this old abandoned infrastructure that's that's leaking and bubbling and doing all kinds of stuff, a lot of it is just simply old. And it's, it's old operators that 
disappeared, uh, you know, in the booms and busts of a natural resource industry uh, years before um, Dogger and now Caljam, but years before the relevant regulators uh, really had, you know, any sort of a legal muscle behind them. Well, I remember as a kid, even when a lot of these wells were operating and, you know, we'd go in, we'd sneak behind the fence, go in and be walking on the pipeline, stuff like that. And, you know, we'd accidentally step into leaking oil that was coming. I mean, it's just... Um, it even then it seemed like many of those properties were not particularly well maintained. Well, you know, let's let's put it in perspective. If you if you look at as as far as we know of the universe of, of oil wells in in the state of California, and this is mainly uh, Kern County south through you know through Los Angeles County, uh, we're talking about two hundred forty thousand oil and gas wells in that area alone. Uh, and so this is you know one of the one of the experts I spoke with for the story called uh, called LA one of the most petroleum dense basins in the world. I mean, th- this were these were everywhere, and um, you know they they used to kind of just toss stuff, whether it would be you know just wood or mud or whatever, into the into the hole and maybe put a cap on it and walk away and say that that was proper decommissioning uh, of old oil wells. And so when you have decades and decades of, of that kind of cavalier attitude uh, that's only slightly being made up for it, you know, by a modern industry. Yeah, you're, you know, I'm not surprised that, that uh, you know, that you've got stories like that. Yeah, this guy, it just seems like no one at that point was really doing oversight. So at this point, who's at least nominally charged with overseeing these properties and finding the party responsible for cleanup? Sure. So, Statewide in California, um, it's it's this agency called CalGEM, uh, formerly the Division of Oil, Gas, and Geothermal Resources, and their job is to is to oversee um, you know oil and gas, is to assess fees on production, and you know and slap slap the industry with penalties and fines if they catch them doing anything wrong. But you also have other agencies, Bureau of Land Management, if it's federal land or in the city of Los Angeles. Um, there's another whole patchwork uh, in charge of, of regulating, with a lot of the power being with the the Los Angeles uh, Fire Department, who until until maybe a year or two ago really didn't seem to have much of an understanding of what their role was, which is a bit scary uh, when you know when we know that in the city of Los Angeles they're kind of the one of the ultimate powers uh, in, in regulating oil and gas. And uh, what's the sense of the costs we're talking about, given that so many of these wells have now been closed with equipment left behind? Has has someone got a comprehensive price tag? I don't think anyone has a has the perfect answer. Um, I've I've kind of searched uh, high and low, and what I can tell you the closest to an actual there's a couple metrics. Um, one of them is I, I use public records requests to kind of get historical costs in Los Angeles. And uh, a lot of times we're talking a hundred thousand dollars or more for an individual well. And so kind of just keep in mind that that number of, of 240,000 around the state, that number gets a lot cheaper. Um, a recent report from the, uh, uh, the California Council on Science and Technology uh, found if you go to Kern County, uh, these more rural areas where you don't have to worry about moving and breaking up city infrastructure. So there's not other costs like moving electricity wires or digging up sidewalks or roads. Um, so there, you know, it could be 30,000, 40,000 for an individual well. 
Um, but, you know, there was a case a few years back uh, near Echo Park in, on, on Furman Street uh, where it cost $1.2 million for two wells. And, and albeit that's a very extreme example, but that was still a very real cost that uh, that CalGem had to had to pay. So $600,000 for each of those wells. Um, and what we do know, uh, even if we don't know the, the exact price tag for each, is we do know that the money companies have set aside uh, in case the government is tasked with this cleanup. We know that that number is is vastly insufficient. Well, for for many of these sites, have they been dormant for so many decades? The companies that operated the wells don't even exist anymore. Maybe there's not even a, a, a an entity that acquired them. So there's no one to go after. Exactly. You know, there's kind of a few categories of these wells, and one is what you mentioned there. It's kind of called orphaned, which means, you know, who knows who's responsible anymore, but whoever it is, there's no way to legally track them down. There's no way to get money from them. And so in, in this uh, in this analysis we published, and, and a shout out here to Ryan Menezes, my partner from the LA Times, who is just a, a, a data whiz, uh, you know, he and I found about two and a half thousand in that category around the state. And that's just kind of, okay, this is now the state's problem. Um, and, but a, another area of concern is these wells that, that haven't been dormant for decades, but they have been dormant for months or years. And I think today is a perfect day to be talking about this because oil prices have dropped 30%, uh, over the weekend. And so, you know, if you have companies that own these, these wells that are idle, these wells that haven't been producing for just a couple months or a couple of years, and you have, you know, a price crater like today, well, what does that mean for those idle wells, are, are we about to see that number of orphan wells that are the state's problem? Are we about to see that number jump up exponentially? And so that's kind of a, a big a big part of what we were looking into. Well, it seems like overall oil prices since the boom in fracking it have softened uh, as well. Do we have a sense of, of how much of the oil of Southern California has been depleted by more than a century of pumping? It's tough to, to, to say exactly, and, and that's something that obviously the industry and, and anyone else would debate. Um, but I think what's telling is when I, when I ask questions like that of, of uh, state regulators, they're not hesitant in saying the industry is on the decline and our job is no longer to promote it. Our job is now just to manage that decline. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about this boom in fracking, but that's fracking in West Texas and, and Southeast New Mexico. There's not very much fracking and there's not very much ability for modern fracking in the California oil fields. Uh, and then you you toss on top of the fact that there's not a ton of fracking that can be done. You know, Newsom coming out uh, very much against, um, you know, additional fracking. There's not any way you slice it. There's not a future for oil and gas in the state of California. We're talking with Marco Laldi. He's environmental reporter for the Desert Sun. But we're talking about a piece uh, in the Los Angeles Times uh, with the Center for Public Integrity on which Mark collaborated the piece about uh, all the idled oil wells in Los Angeles. Uh, they've essentially been abandoned in many cases without the ability to even determine if there's an entity that is responsible. Uh, residents who lived near these oil fields that are shut down and unsupervised want to have the sites cleaned up. But the question is, who really is taking on that responsibility and what degree of urgency does it take on from state and from local officials? Mark, there any sort of legislation that is addressing this to try and find a, a more comprehensive answer? 
Yeah, there's actually been a lot of movement uh, in, in recent years, and, and that's one of the things that brought me onto this story, um, was there was a piece of legislation called AB 2729, and the, the broad overview of it, it was passed in 2016 and fully came into effect last year, that created a, a kind of new regulatory regime for that, that class of wells I was talking about that are idle or, or temporarily inactive. And the idea is to start to get ahead of the issue and start you know, when it becomes clear that companies aren't, uh, you know, aren't going to be restart, you know, restart production to, to push them towards actually closing these things before, you know, this price tank that happened today happens before something of that happens and companies just walk away. Um, so one of the things that, that we did with our project is we we looked at those new regulations that are some some of the most progressive uh, in the country. Uh, you know, so I do have to kind of put that caveat out there, you know, California is doing more than a lot of states. All right. But just to kind of quickly, yeah. Just to kind of put that in perspective, you know, they say that after eight years, you know, of, of inactivity, these wells should be starting to be cleaned up. We found that after 10 months of inactivity, that's really the time when uh, when there starts to be issues. So, all right. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it very much. Journalist Mark Olalde joining us uh, in this LA Times investigating piece with the Center for Public Integrity on AirTalk. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Such a busy news day today. In case you just joined us, former L.A. City Councilman Mitch Englander turned himself into the FBI today on charges of obstructing an investigation into his alleged acceptance of cash, escort services, hotel rooms, and meals during trips with a businessman to Las Vegas and Palm Springs. The U.S. Attorney's Office says Englander was named in a seven-count indictment returned in January, and the former councilman is set for arraignment this afternoon in federal court in downtown Los Angeles. As we have any additional details, we'll bring them to you. This is part of that... uh, long-time investigation that the feds have been carrying out, which documents were seized from City Hall offices and a number of different figures around City Hall were believed to be under investigation. But this the first case where we have actual charges uh, that have come back in an indictment, uh, this involving former L.A. City Councilman Mitchell Englander, whose district was the West San Fernando Valley. Well, as you probably heard, many events around the world have been canceled. Some sporting events in places like Italy have been played in empty stadiums with the players still involved in games that count, but no one there to watch those games in person. So the the question is, what should happen with events here in the U.S.? Friday, late in the day, the city of Austin announced that the South by Southwest Festival, a huge part of Texas culture and a big moneymaker for Austin, is canceled. That after there were reports that many of the participants had already said they were not coming and there were concerns what attendance would be like anyway, even before Austin canceled the event. And then we had the announcement 
announcement that the PNB Paribas tennis tournament, one of the big ones, uh, not one of the four Grand Slams, but the level right below that at Indian Wells at the Tennis Garden in Coachella Valley, was canceling its tournament getting underway today. With us, Los Angeles County Director of Public Health, Barbara Ferrer, uh, to talk about what's happening locally. Thank you so much for, for being with us. First, what's the latest status uh, stats we have on exposure locally and uh, fatalities from COVID-19? Sure. I, I think uh, here in L.A. County, we've reported 14 positive cases. Um, that includes one case that uh, we was diagnosed early uh, on in, uh, in the outbreak in January, and that person has uh, since uh, tested negative uh, two times and, you know, has the his infectious period is over and he is, uh, you know, no longer subject to any quarantine or isolation orders. The remaining 13 cases here in LA County are people who are still um, isolated um, and uh, will need to stay isolated until they also have two negative tests for a novel coronavirus that are at least 24 hours apart. Um, We anticipate reporting additional cases uh, pretty much every day uh, as we move forward. You know, we're a very large jurisdiction. Uh, We have uh, over 10 million people who live here, and we have a lot of travelers. And with the expanded capacity for testing, uh, we are preparing for the fact that we will see more cases. Up till now, all of our cases have had a known exposure, uh, either to uh, travel in a place where there has been a confirmed outbreak or close contact with a person who was positive for COVID-19. We also anticipate that shortly uh, that will change in L.A. County as well, and that we will see what is commonly called community transmission, that that is cases where there's no known exposure source that can be identified. Yesterday, we had the Los Angeles Marathon. When you were on with us last Thursday, you were talking about the importance of people having a six-foot buffer zone uh, to protect themselves from transmission. Uh, and I guess we'll see um, if any is linked to to the marathon going forward. But um, with other events that are coming up, sports events, concerts, um, houses of worship, schools, Uh, How close are we in Los Angeles County to your office recommending that some of these events be suspended? You know, we're certainly going to start recommending, as we see more cases in community transmission, modifications um, to both events and uh, practices, general sort of even workplace practices. You know, we particularly want to emphasize that uh, at this point, even with, with our 14 cases here in L.A. County, we're recommending that people who um, have underlying health conditions, pregnant women, and uh, folks who are aging uh, take uh, additional precautions and really uh, try to avoid uh, being in large gatherings that are not absolutely necessary. Um, so I think at this point, we're most worried about people who may be vulnerable to serious illness and we've already, uh, are, we're already recommending that for those people, uh, there be additional precautions that are put in place. We're going to be talking with all of the various sectors this week and, and again, making recommendations on practices that can happen at nursing homes, at uh, long-term care facilities, 
we are completing a inventory of a technical assistance and assessments at all 330 interim housing facilities and uh, have been working with all of those facilities around infection control protocols that need to get modified and, and we'll start the same on Wednesday with our nursing homes. So I think we are at a period of time where it really does behoove everyone to make some of those changes that we've been asking people to prepare for. At this point, we don't have community transmission, and because of that, we haven't recommended uh, closing or canceling public events. Uh, but as we see more cases and we uh, see community transmission here, we'll, we will have to make uh, another set of assessments. What's going on in the L.A. County Jail? Because there you've got so many people in close quarters. A single case could be devastating in a facility like that and also with people coming in and out on a regular basis. What's happening there? You know, uh, I want to give a lot of credit to both uh, the Sheriff's Department and Correctional Health. Uh, We've worked through many of these issues. We've had outbreaks in the jails before, and uh, we've adopted some very stringent infection control processes, including uh, the jails are prepared to both manage isolation and quarantine uh, of people who are, in fact, confined Um, You know, again, a lot of this uh, really relies on uh, excellent screening at the point of entry, um, and the jails are, again, prepared to uh, implement this, certainly the county jails. I I can't speak to all of the the other jails. We're posting guidance either today or tomorrow uh, for jails to use as they, again, prepare themselves for the possibility of having uh, people, both employees and uh, people who are are uh, confined uh, in their facilities uh, present with symptoms of possible COVID-19. We're talking with Barbara Ferrer, who's director of L.A. County Department of Public Health. Uh, you mentioned about the importance of testing, but we hear there are not enough test kits that are out there. At, the, at, at this point, um, are emergency rooms well-stocked with, with test kits? Uh, are they available to nursing homes and the like to where people can get tested? No, it's a really good question, Larry, uh, around uh, what can happen and in which facilities. Um, Certainly uh, hospitals, hospitals don't need the test kit. What they need is to be able to collect a sample, a specimen that can then get sent to the lab. The labs are where you need the test kits. Currently in L.A. County, the public health lab can do testing, and our understanding is that uh, we have two commercial labs that are also setting up starting today to be able to process uh, testing for COVID-19. So we ought to be able to increase our capacity to do the testing. Collecting the the lab specimens, the samples, which are oral and nasal swabs, and occasionally uh, it's also recommended to do a sputum specimen, that does need to happen in a facility that is able to collect those specimens. And I know that all of our hospitals can do that. And some of our larger provider organizations may be set up to do that. So they have enough of those kits that collect the samples. There's no shortage of those? You know, as, as I have not heard here in L.A. County that the issue is on collecting the samples, Larry. What I have heard, and I think it's real, is that the issue is even if you collected the samples, 
there aren't enough places to process all the samples yet. And one thing we're very relieved to hear is that the commercial labs will come online. I think from the public's perspective, uh, their sense is that they could go anywhere to get somebody to take a specimen, to take those samples, and that's just not true. You need certain conditions in a facility, and the staff have to be trained to collect the samples. So there's that limitation as well. You you can't just walk into every provider office and, and expect that they're going to be able to collect the specimens. What what, uh, what happens if you've got a resident of a nursing home or a board and care facility, a, a smaller converted house, and someone tests positive there? Do you have to remove the person to protect the other members of that? Can you quarantine in a room within a nursing home or sure. board and care facility? How is that handled? Sure. I mean, it's easiest in uh, sort of nursing, skilled nursing homes and long-term care facilities who all have infection control protocols uh, that they need to follow and that they know how to follow. And that includes being able to isolate a person who is a confirmed case of any infectious disease. In this case, we're talking about COVID-19. And then the capacity to also quarantine all of the close contacts of a person with a confirmed case. So in, in, our, uh, in our licensed healthcare facilities, those infection control protocols already exist and all of the facilities should be able to manage that. I, as I noted, starting on Wednesday, we will have teams out visiting all of our skilled nursing homes and long-term care facilities to make sure that uh, those protocols are in place and they actually know how they would manage this. I think the board and cares are different um, as are interim shelters, where in fact the, there's no licensing requirement um, that you have this capability. And in those situations, we need to work closely uh, with the managers of those facilities to make sure that they have either built in that capacity or they have an alternative location where people can go who need to be isolated and quarantined. You're absolutely right that somebody who is positive uh, for not for COVID-19 should not be uh, in a situation where they're exposing others. They do need to be isolated and that the healthcare professionals that are treating them and caring for them are using appropriate personal uh, protection equipment. So they don't pass it on to the next person they're providing care for, of course. There's very stringent uh, procedures in place and all healthcare workers are trained in how to use those procedures. Um, so our check-in is really to make sure in the licensed healthcare facilities that folks are doing what they're uh, what they know that they're supposed to be doing. We're talking with the director of LA County Department of Public Health, Barbara Ferrer. Carolyn Santa Anna has a question for you. She, she says the Centers for Disease Control recommends preparing for virus spread by getting a, a supply of your medications. But when I called my insurance company to get an override, they wouldn't provide it. So Carol says you really have to lie and say you're going on a long vacation to get um, the prescription filled under your insurance to stock up. You have any advice on, on that, Barbara, how to deal with that? You know, I'm very sympathetic. Um, I think one of the issues that really comes to the forefront when you are asking people to get prepared for a possible pandemic that will require us to change how we live our daily lives is that all the systems that surround us, 
this is one of them, you know, this uh, sort of how are you able to get your prescriptions and the limitations on, you know, you only can order a 30-day supply, et cetera. All of those uh, systems controls that may work perfectly appropriate under normal circumstances are now barriers to people actually feeling like they can get ready. We certainly are asking, uh, you know, our, our healthcare providers, our insurance providers, our employers, take a hard look and wherever you can, you need to institute as quickly as possible some flexibility. You know, the same thing applies for employers. You know, we're asking that people be able to stay home when they're sick and actually stay home for at least 24 hours uh, until they their fever has completely resolved. Uh, and many workplaces make it difficult. Uh, there's not paid sick leave. They have stringent requirements on you need to get a doctor's note. So again, we all need flexibility here for this to work. It will cost us a lot more in the end if we're not well prepared than to take some steps now to allow us to do what we call standard good practice, primary amongst that is staying home when you're sick and as as your um, as your guest noted, your caller noted, is being prepared, and that means being able to actually order ahead of time for your prescription medications. Cal State Long Beach announcing that 10 of its students and two community member club advisors have self-quarantined after possible exposure to the coronavirus. They were apparently at an event in Washington, D.C., a large event where three other uh, participants tested positive for COVID-19. So just out of an abundance of caution, the 10 students and the two club advisors are um, uh, are staying away from others, uh, self-quarantining as a result of that. Barbara Ferrer, thank you so much. We appreciate it, and we'll look forward to talking with you tomorrow. Thank you for agreeing to do this every day. It's a huge service. Thank you, uh, to you and, and to all your listeners for paying attention. Thank you. Barbara Ferrer directs Los Angeles County's Department of Public Health. Coming up, we're going to talk about the economics of COVID-19, cancellation of the South by Southwest Music, Film and Arts Festival in Austin, Texas on Friday, the announcement of the Big Tennis Tournament in Indian Wells being canceled this year out of concerns over the virus. We'll talk about what the thresholds are and what's happening in the travel industry. I flew in and out of Burbank Airport to Oakland over the weekend and seemed like a ghost town both places compared to what I'm used to on the weekend. We'll be back and talk about that in just one minute on Air Talk. Another terrible day for the stock market as a result of coronavirus. Also, uh, oil dropping by price of about a third. That's had a huge effect as well. Looking at the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it's down just under 2,000 points, down uh, about seven and a third percent on a very bad day yet again. Uh, we're also awaiting that uh, cruise ship is just about ready to dock in Oakland. I'm looking at video of the Grand Princess as it gets close there to docking in Oakland and uh, those 20-some individuals who are positive for coronavirus will be quarantined as they're taken off the ship.
Well, let's talk about what's happening in travel and the entertainment sector. They've been hit very hard already by COVID-19. Charlie Leoka is president and co-founder of the consumer travel group Travelers United. Charlie, I was just taking a short hop uh, over the weekend up to Oakland and back from Burbank, and um, I was talking to the airport employees, and they're just saying it's been a pretty dead week. How, how much has the industry been hit in the past few days? Well, the airline industry and the uh, hotel industries have really been clobbered recently. And uh, there's no real good relief coming up in the future. And all of the advice to people is don't fly. Don't put yourself into a flying Petri dish. Do not, uh, you know, just stay home for a while. And so this is going to be a very, um, it's going to be a trying time for the travel industry across the board. Uh, especially with things like the South by Southwest being canceled and um, and now tennis tournaments being canceled that you've already mentioned. And, uh, and a lot of meetings have been canceled and hundreds and hundreds of business travelers have now been told they cannot fly and they're not letting them fly. I've got friends that live in Boston and they would normally be flying down to Philadelphia or flying to D.C. to work and then going back home. They've been told no Nobody's getting into any airplanes right now. This is not, it's not an optimal time for the um, uh, travel industry, let's say. It's, it's fascinating to see how uh, air travelers change the way they fly, though. Uh, at the airport uh, Friday and yesterday, you know, people were using their disinfecting wipes, wiping all the surfaces down, uh, spending a lot of time you know, in the restroom, washing their hands. People have really taken this to heart. Things we all should have been doing previously, if there's any positive that's come out of this um, terrible virus, it's people taking these sorts of sanitation uh, procedures very seriously. Charlie, what what's your sense of the cruise industry, though, uh, given people being quarantined on these massive shifts? Um, who's who's going to continue with cruises? <laughs> well, I mean, my sense of it is that Cruises can, right now are in really big trouble, and uh, they're in trouble just because of people assuming that there could be a problem on board the ship. And so I have uh, some people, some friends of mine who are actually airline executives have gone on a cruise of the uh, around South America, and now they're not even sure that they're going to be able to get off the cruise boat when it's all over. So there's just a lot of um, – there's an amazing amount of uncertainty because no one really knows specifically what the uh, ramifications of this, of COVID-19 are going to be. And on our travel blog on travelersunited.org, we've been talking about this nonstop. We've had one main story on uh, COVID-19 for the last six weeks. And we've always uh, encouraged everybody to wash their hands and to take basic, um, um, basic actions to protect themselves. But you're right. Right now, things are definitely changing. I mean, it's sort of a funny aside is I was at a national park only yesterday and I went into the bathroom to go to the, you know, to, to use the facilities. And then I had to wait to wash my hands. And we were both joking that we come into the bathroom now more to wash our hands than to do anything else. Yeah. So that's good though. 
Yeah, it is. It is good. It's it's a it's a distinct change to see Americans adopting these practices. And cruise ships, of course, have always had from time to time problems with noroviruses, those intestinal uh, illnesses that, you know, can sweep through a cruise ship. We've heard the stories over the years just because you're ta- touching all the common service, you know, surfaces, you're eating in large dining halls where it's very easy to be passed to and from between the so already cruise ships are kind of, uh, you know, rife for this sort of thing to happen. It's just the stakes are much higher with COVID-19, Charlie. Well, we think the stakes are much higher. When you look at the, um, it's something simple like, uh, you know, the transmission of the flu. I don't know where we are right now. We're at 25, you know, I guess we're around 20,000 or 25,000 people who died already this year. And, um, and so... The stakes have always been high. It's just that we feel better about it because we know there's a we know there's a vaccine. It's not as mysterious to people. And right now we're dealing with something that nobody really quite understands. And so the only thing they know is that they've got to lock themselves away until it's over. And um, and that's what's really creating the big, big problems. All right. Uh, If you have questions about events, about cancellations, maybe you're involved with an event that you're at this point considering whether to cancel it or not. We're at 866-893-KPECC. I'm also interested in hearing if you work in the healthcare industry, maybe you work at a hospital, at uh, an urgent clinic, you deal with the public coming in, presenting with symptoms that could be COVID-19. Do you have access to all the collection kits you need for the testing? How organized is the facility in which you work? And you don't have to mention their name if you'd prefer to be, uh, uh, you know, anonymous about that. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Brian O'Creatown is teasing me about being over 60 and flying, how dangerous that was. I I survived. (laughs) I survived. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. L.A. resident tourist tweets at AirTalk, We slipped in a quick auto trip to the Coachella Valley yesterday where hotels were at peak occupancy, only to find out the big tennis tournament in uh, Indian Wells was canceled. Also, many colleagues in agribusiness had their conferences canceled at the last minute this week. We've heard those uh, reports, L.A. resident tourists, about a lot of different businesses canceling their conferences and companies telling their folks they don't want them taking the risk of flying. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Also with us is Dave Brooks. He's Senior Director of Touring and Live Music at Billboard and the founder of Amplify Media, which covered music and live entertainment industry. Dave, good to have you with us again. Um, How is this affecting the concert business, both large venues and festivals and the smaller clubs? Well, thanks for having me, Larry. And I got to tell you, you know, I've never seen anything quite like this before. Um, you know, I think we're seeing cancellations of some of the huge uh, events you mentioned, like South by Southwest, and concerns about you know big events like uh, Coachella. 
Um, but in terms of, you know, the clubs and even some arenas, um, there hasn't really been any change yet. I, uh, I mean, that could, you know, that, that could change tomorrow. Um, but the, you know, the shows around LA went on this weekend at all size venues and, uh, nobody really batted an eye about it. So it's, it's almost like, uh, the less attention one can draw to their event the better off they are right now. That's interesting. Do you think this is likely to be led, though, by some of the artists? And I know, you know, for some of them, their livelihood is at stake, so their bias might be to perform. But do you think there's some of them, particularly when travel's involved, they might start to balk at this, and and that has a cascade effect on cancellations? There'll definitely be artists, you know, who who will decide not to, uh, to play and not want to tour because of fear uh, either themselves contracting coronavirus or, you, you know, their fans. I, I, I think it's going to be really interesting, though, when you get to the festival levels, like, you know, like the Coachellas of the world, because those aren't as easy to cancel. And I think, if, you know, if, if the organizers cancel it themselves, you know, they could be on the hook to pay the artist um, the guarantees for the concert. It's almost uh, what I'm hearing is that in order – you know, for them to avoid huge losses, they have to be these huge festivals have to actually be canceled by, um, you know, government officials like public health officials, like um, and, and local politicians, um, and then that would, of course, like you know, trigger you know force majeure clauses in these, these contracts that you know basically kind of give these promoters a uh, uh, an out, so to speak. Uh, because of something, you know, a, an act of God. Well, and that's what South by Southwest, what happened, right? So the mayor of Austin held his news conference late Friday. Um, and, and so in them saying it should be shut down and and then the South by Southwest organizers complying with that, then presumably they're covered by insurance. Well, you know, we just had a story this morning um at, over at billboard.com and the organizers are now saying that infectious disease is not covered in their event cancellation policy, which is um, really a bad news for them. And I, you know, I, I think we're going to see more of that. Um, you, you know, infectious disease has been typically exempted from event cancellation insurance and, and you won't have to purchase a waiver to get that type of coverage. And it's my understanding that, you know, many promoters and event organizers just didn't purchase that waiver because they didn't think something like this was possible. Let me go back to Charlie Leoka because this also comes into play for travelers who are planning upcoming vacations and have booked air travel and hotels or cruises. If they've bought travel insurance, as many people do these days, uh, does that also vary as to whether it covers pandemics or epidemics? Uh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, we have to realize that no one's declared this a pandemic yet, but it has been declared an epidemic. And that has wiped out about half of the different travel insurance people in terms of their responsibility towards um, uh, trip uh, insurance. So uh, one of the first things you have to do is you have to read your um, insurance contract very, very carefully. Check the exceptions part section and make sure that there's no exceptions for either pandemics or for um, uh, in what are they uh, or epidemics. Okay, and so that will that should help you out. There are insurance products which do not um, 
that will still pay after if you've got an epidemic or a pandemic. However, there are also a lot of them that don't. And if you look at the largest ones, which you find right at the end of an airline uh, reservation form, uh, they're either run by Allianz or they're run by Travel Guard. Yeah, they do not cover any of the. Uh, they do not cover ep- epidemics. Even the ones by Berkshire Hathaway do not cover epidemics. And so anyone who um, is buying insurance really needs to pay attention right now. Something folks never would have thought of. Um, All right. We're going to continue our conversation with Charlie Leoka of Travelers United, Dave Brooks of Billboard. Let me take a listener call, though, because I'd ask listeners to reach out to us uh, about um, if you work in a healthcare setting, emergency room, urgent care, nursing home, I'd like to hear how well-prepared your medical facility is for cases of COVID-19 coronavirus. Marie in Valencia, I understand you're an urgent care nurse. What have things been like at the facility where you work? Um, Well, as far as ordering goes, we've been having difficulty getting masks, both N95 and the standard surgical masks, um, because they're they're on back order. A lot of our products are coming in from China, um, but we do have some protocols in place. We have an epidemic risk screening that has been placed into our computer that is required to do it three times from the start of registration until a patient is in the room um, being, being checked in. Um, also, if they do test positive for that screening, they're placed in isolation and we are asked to send them to the hospital. Um, because we're not able, according to the CDC um, representative I spoke with the other day, we're not able to get the COVID-19 test kit of, unless the patient is admitted to the ICU and has a positive, sick, COVID-19 positive screened patient that they have come in contact with directly in the last 30 days. So this this runs counter to what we heard from Barbara Ferrer of L.A. County Health, where she said that facilities like yours, if I understood her, had the collection kits available, the the choke point was at the labs being able to process them. You're saying you don't have the kits and you can't give them to people exhibiting symptoms that they could be positive for the virus. That's correct. The only thing that we have available to us is the current influenza A and B test kits. The COVID-19 is a special order from the CDC directly upon admission to the ICU for certain symptoms and as well as a a positive screening for COVID-19 contact. So what are you doing with those patients? You're just sending them to the hospital ER? We're having to send them, yeah, because we have no access. So unless the patient is symptomatic and has had contact with somebody that's had, uh, you know, contact with someone from those travel countries, that are on the list, we're not able to do anything other than send them to the hospital and have them further evaluated there because it's a triple um, specimen that's required and they have to be refrigerated and collected in a certain test kit, which we have not been issued. Marie, thank you so much for sharing your experience at the Urgent Care Center where you're a nurse. Marie in Valencia, again, I'd like to hear from you if you're a healthcare professional and uh, you're have experiences that you can share uh, with how well prepared or not your facility is in handling people coming in presenting with flu-like symptoms and uh, whether they are tested or not for COVID-19, the coronavirus. 866 
893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org, back in 90 seconds. New York now has more cases of COVID-19 than the state of Washington, which had been the center of the most U.S. cases of the virus. New York has 142 current cases now. Uh, Just in the past 24 hours, that number has jumped significantly. U.S. companies are being hit hard by problems in the supply chain as they can't get goods from China and other places in Europe. We've got an oil war, very bad timing for this, between the Saudis and Russia. So the price for a barrel of U.S. crude has dropped below $34. What's a barrel of water cost? 34 bucks uh, below that for a barrel of oil. Now, usually when oil prices go down, that's usually good, right? Because it cuts the cost of, of doing business. But in times of economic duress, energy prices are seen as a barometer. And at this point, everything is being u- viewed negatively. And so the market down 8 percent today, more than 2,000 points on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Very, very bad day. On the stock market, we're also talking about the human side of this and the event side of this. I'd like to hear from you if you work in a health facility. What have you seen in the way of the public presenting with flu-like symptoms, how you're dealing with that, and uh, how well-equipped are you to collect samples that can be tested for COVID-19? Also, I'm curious to hear, if you're a student or parent of a student, how your schools have been dealing with this. Uh, our son is a student at Claremont McKenna College. We've already gotten uh, two emails from the school detailing uh, how they're handling it, what's going to happen if any students test positive, how they're going to quarantine, why they're continuing to hold classes. All of this explained so that parents uh, don't fret too much, hopefully, about what's going on with their kids at college. But I'd be interested if you have a kid in school or in college, uh, if you yourself uh, are a student What sort of communication are you getting? 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Dave Brooks of Billboard, do we have any kind of a, a historic precedent for public events being just shut down for an extended period? I mean, obviously, September 11th led to wholesale cancellation of events in the week afterward, but pretty quickly, almost as a show of American defiance against the attacks, events started going on as scheduled. Right, exactly. Um, You know, and and people needed those events, right? They needed them. um, It helps kind of morale, I guess you could say, help the country get in a better mood. Um, In terms of uh, something like this, I, it's really, we looked hard, it's very hard to find a kind of a precedent, you know, especially kind of in the modern era. I mean, the closest I think we found was there was a, a number of cancellations around, you know, the SARS scare um, in the early 2000s from the Rolling Stones uh, to Mariah Carey. But it was uh, mostly dates outside the U.S., and it was, it was kind of a, a blip. I, I can't think of anything that um, compares to something like this now. 
Steve in Torrance, good to have you with us on AirTalk. I understand you have an event company, so uh, you must be on pins and needles. Yeah, we actually just got off the phone about five minutes ago with a large local corporate client, well, international global corporate client. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but uh, they just canceled three three lunches this week. That's three big gigs. Um, we also work out at Coachella every year for years, and I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for that to cancel, unfortunately. But with the tennis tournament going down, um, I don't see that not happening. So. With those three, with those three big lunches, how many people are we talking about collectively as part of that? How many? About seven hundred. Seven hundred. Wow. That's just going to come down through the pipeline to a lot of, you know, they just don't, you know, the corporate clients, the large corporations are the ones that have obviously the the strongest network and the strongest business backgrounds and they're really kind of on top of trying to mitigate this as much as they can and that's just gonna you know it's gonna dribble down to the little guys and it just is what it is we have to figure out uh as a small business owner we're always the one who who has to figure out how to get by and you know that's what we'll do yeah it's got to be very difficult do you do you have any of your clients who ask you as an event company for advice or ask you, well, what are your other clients doing to try and get a sense if they're on the cusp, what they want to do? No, I have, I have clients who are calling me asking me what we do as a company to mitigate possible infection and possible spread of the coronavirus, which is, you know, and it, it, you know, being in the hospitality industry, we always do this all the time. Anyways, we we always wash our hands. We always, you know, wipe down surfaces. But now, like, you know, we have delivery people wearing gloves. We're not going to send delivery people out wearing masks because that just will put the fear of God into anybody. Um, but, you know, it's wiping down and just being as clean as you can. But, you know, there's, I mean, let's face it, there's just no stopping this thing. You got to mitigate it as much as you can. And, and uh, it's going to impact everybody. Um but unfortunately, you know, the small businesses aren't going to see the tax breaks that the government's going to give, you know, the large, the large corporate airlines and, and things like that, where it's it's possible. Uh, we should mention the dates of Coachella are the weekend of April 10th. So that's the 10th, 11th and the 12th. And then the following weekend, Friday, the 17th through Sunday, the 19th. Those are the six days of uh, Coachella. So, you know, we're a month away from what are the largest festivals in the U.S., just huge events. And then Stagecoach, the country music festival, comes in right after Coachella. So you, you've you got, you know, three weekend, long weekends worth of events uh, there at the Polo Grounds in Indio. Uh, Steve, is, is there insurance that handles the kinds of things that you do or not? Um, and there's lots of business coverages that we're that we're looking into, but you know, pandemic isn't uh, typically one that gets covered. I know, you know, in cases like Coachella, people are renting rooms through VRBO and Airbnb. I know that they have cancellation policies in place that they are going to refund people um, for for bookings through them. But you know, there's you know. Don't have the insurance now. I can tell you one thing for sure is that if you try adding it on, it ain't going to happen. 
All right. Yeah, right. At this point, that's clear. Steve, I really appreciate you sharing your experience as an event uh, company owner. Uh, We have a listener writes on the AirTalk page. Thank you, BNP, for canceling. My son was begging me nonstop to not cancel our tickets. Now I have to worry about my daughter begging me to let her go to Disneyland tomorrow to sing with her school group. Their grandfather lives with us. I feel it's too risky. You know, very, very personal decision to make. Of course, you can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org, where Ann writes, Larry, my daughters at UCLA, students and parents have received 12 updates so far through the Bruin Safe app. That's in addition to emails. Tonight, there'll be a live stream town hall about the virus where students can ask questions. And uh, Ann also pointing out that Stanford, of course, has already moved to online-only classes for the rest of their quarter. You can call us, share your experience about what you're seeing with the school you attend or your daughter or son attends. Uh, If your work is canceling events as a result of concerns over COVID-19, we're talking about what's to come with large and small live events and public gatherings. Again, the uh, big tennis tournament out at Indian Wells canceled after the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas uh, was canceled late Friday. We're at 866-893-5722. Back in one minute on Air Talk. In case you just joined us, some big news in Los Angeles politics earlier this morning. Former L.A. City Councilman Mitch Englander has been indicted on charges. He obstructed an investigation into whether he took thousands of dollars, escort services, and other gifts from a businessman involved in major developments. The U.S. Attorney's Office says that Englanders surrendered to FBI agents this morning to face arraignment to take place in federal court this afternoon. He's charged with one count of participating in a scheme to falsify material facts, three counts of making false statements, and three counts of witness tampering. Englander represented his West San Fernando Valley District from July of 2011 until he surprisingly resigned December 31st 2018. Uh, Englander has not made any public comment at this point, but is expected to appear in federal court for arraignment this afternoon. Uh, There's been a long ongoing investigation by federal officials into allegations of pay to play at Los Angeles City Hall involving uh, money changing hands in exchange for assistance with getting business and development projects through the city council. There have been documents that have been seized from city council offices, but now we have an actual criminal uh, multi-count indictment handed down by a grand jury in January and the arrest this morning of former city councilman Mitch Englander, a man with us, of course, many times while on the council with us as a guest on Air Talk. Uh, joining us now is Michael in Claremont. Michael, I understand that you uh, operate a 19-acre health and wellness facility. Uh, share with us about what precautions you're taking as a result of COVID-19. Uh, yeah, Larry, thanks. We're, um, we have, you know, between 1,500 and 2,000 people come through our doors every day. Wow. And so there's a big expectation that uh, we're going to 
um, be doing, you know, the, the right things here. And uh, we've already, you know, done a whole bunch of stuff, uh, you know, because of the nature of our business. And so what we're doing is we're stepping up to make things high, as highly visible as possible so people feel comfortable coming uh, and visiting our facility. Um, but, you know, in the end run, in the end, it's it's going to be incumbent upon the uh, guests also to practice proper hygiene because, you know, we can do everything in the world, but if they're not washing their hands and avoiding touching their face and practice, you know, doing good practices, we're going to still be at risk of, uh, you know, uh, spreading the spreading the virus possibly. I don't know. Yeah, and given the size of your facility, just, um, you know, this isn't like a little storefront spa. You're talking about 19 acres and between 1,500 and 2,000 visitors a day. How big is your staff? Uh, staff, um, the, the total staff is about 260. Um, you know, I'm not responsible for all of them, but, uh, you know, we, we do have a, a lot of staff to be concerned with too and educate people. And we've got like a, a, a Hollywood filming crew coming t- tonight to set up to do a movie. And, uh, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with that. We're, we were, you know, first worried about the weather, but, you know, with, with all this other stuff, who knows what's going to happen. It, you know, it's, yeah. it's a lot of things up in the air. Are, are you comfortable naming your facility or would you prefer not to? Yeah, probably better not. Okay. All right. I mean, I don't, I, 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 it wouldn't be a big deal, but I, I would rather have permission before it. No, that makes sense. No, that you'd want to be authorized for that. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your experience at your large facility. Ken, in Venice, what's happening with your work with coronavirus? Um, I work in television, mostly um, bigger commercials, and I've been getting ready for a, a big sports commercial, and they just canceled the whole thing because of the coronavirus. The studio, it's a, one of the biggest studios, they, so they didn't want talent traveling because of the coronavirus. Oh, oh, so it's okay if the crew gets sick, but we can't have the talent getting sick, of course. <laughs> God. Oh, Ken. Okay, so they they just canceled the whole the whole shoot. Well, they canceled the whole shoot, and um, they said they're going to try and you know revisit it in in a couple of months or so. Perhaps they just want to see what's going to happen. But um, I've heard rumors of other things happening. And the the bigger issue is the industry has been doing really well. I mean, it, it, it ended the year on a really high note, and so far this year it's been really busy. So it yeah. really would be bad for everybody in, in L.A. and SoCal if someone dropped the anchor because of this and other shoots started getting canceled. And it's presumably this isn't the only one to which it's happening. How do you feel, though, about them expressing concerns about the talent? Um, I completely understand. I mean, the industry is talent-driven, so... Okay, all right. Ken, I appreciate it very much. Thanks. Uh, Tom, in Koreatown, you're a nurse practitioner at a local clinic. How well-prepared are you? In my opinion, not very well prepared at all. I mean, there's no, no nothing for testing. And, but in addition to that, there's no pre-screening or anything like that. So anybody that walks into the waiting area, they're all confined together. Uh, sometimes there's masks set out for them. Usually there's masks. We have some masks, but sometimes the, the people walk away, you know, the customers in the store. Because I'm going to tell you where I work because I'm trying, I don't want people going there if they think they have uh, coronavirus. I work in a minute clinic, you know, in the Los Angeles area. That are part of CVS. Part of CVS. 
And the stores sold out of hand sanitizer. They're sold out of masks. You know, so, uh, you know, sometimes if we set a few masks out and things like that, you know, people start taking them. And then the, for the patients, they're not there, you know. And yeah. In addition to the fact that, you know, we have one little sign that says, look, if you're coughing, put a mask on. Uh, so I think we're we're underutilizing masks, you know, and uh, I think the the signage is low and um, and like I said, we have no test no testing uh, equipment test for coronavirus. Um, and I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm reeling, but I don't want to spend a lot of time, waste a lot of time. But you know, of course, that the Attorney General or Surgeon General of the United States said, you know, if you got a cold, don't go into the don't go in to the uh, local clinics and things like that, more or less stay home and just treat yourself. Or call, people can call it advice nurse and call telehealth. But, you know, if they go into the clinic, they're spreading, you know, they're potentially spreading it. Sure, but you've got, if you've got people that are elderly and uh, their health is already compromised, you would certainly, I would think, want to get them tested as quickly as possible uh, to determine uh, how far to go to try and protect their health. I appreciate your call, Tom. Good to have you with us. I also want to thank our special guest, Charlie Leoka, Travelers United, the organization he co-founded. He's president of it, talking about how the travel industry is reeling in the wake of the spread of COVID-19. And our thanks to Dave Brooks, Senior Director of Touring and Live Music at Billboard, talking with us about how artists at this point are generally moving forward with their events, South by Southwest. Uh, Aside from that, the question is going to be, of course, with the spread of the virus, at what point do those uh, concerts start getting canceled? It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Oh, Glenn writes on the page, my wife, daughter, and I were supposed to visit colleges on the East Coast, just received a notice from Brown, canceling our tour. From all of us at Air Talk, have a good day.